totalitarianism is the belief at the end of the day that the ideology of the totalizing enterprise has to fill every aspect of life for every individual. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today I'm really delighted to have on the program someone who's really the foremost thinker in his field uh, and also one of the most controversial. And he's thinking and writing and uh, doing a lot of public speaking in the space of critical race theory and wokeness. And I think I'm in the category of many people who think they have an idea of what these terms mean. But having read a couple of uh, our guests' recent books, I was astonished to, to discover how actually ignorant I was about many of the things that James has been thinking and writing about for some years. Our guest today is the honorary Canuck, uh, James Lindsay. Thanks for being with us today, James. It's good to be up here. This is my first trip up to Canada as an adult. I was here a bit when I was a kid, but uh, this is very exciting. I know you call yourself an honorary Canuck. I'm going to ask you to explain that. You've also said that our country may be the, the wokest country in the world. Uh, I, I would probably have to uh, uh, you know, agree with you, unfortunately, uh, as sad as that is. Uh, but um, before we do that, uh, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with a few aphorisms. Uh, these uh, are paying homage somewhat to some of the people that you talk about in your most recent book, that is race Marxism. The first quotation we have is from uh, Herbert Marcuse, who wrote that thought that accepts reality as given is no thought at all. The second one is from somebody else who's talked about a lot in your most recent book, Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and she wrote, the better we understand how identities and power work together from one context to another, the less likely our movements for change are to fracture. And uh, next from uh, another person from your book, uh, who's uh, Friedrich Hegel, who wrote, it is easier to discover deficiency in individuals and states and in providence than to see their real important value. And finally, from our guest, uh, from his book, who wrote, critical race theory is a disaster. It has no legitimate place in our society. I couldn't agree more. So who do we have in the show today? Well, James Lindsay, he's an American-born author, mathematician, professional troublemaker. Uh, Dr. Lindsay has written six books spanning a range of subjects, including religion, the philosophy of science, postmodern theory. He's a leading expert on critical race theory. Uh, which has led, led him to reject it completely. Uh, he is the founder of New Discourses, that's his own podcast, and is currently promoting uh, his new book, as well as another book that he co-authored called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Uh, and I uh, understand that that book has been uh, translated now into uh, over 15 languages. Welcome to the program, James. Thanks very much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we, ha we have to ask you this. Why are you an honorary Canuck? Well, the thing is that um, there's been some controversy about my trip up here to Alberta, and I tend to try to use insults. Uh, <laughs> I, I take them to myself and use them as armor. 
And so I thought it'd be funny to provoke people who are upset that I'm here. They said that Canada doesn't want me, uh, which I don't feel like that's been my reception so far. So I, I think I was right and they were wrong. But they said Canada doesn't want me. So I said, you know what, I'm an honorary Canuck now. So um, I'm one of you. You can't stop me. And uh, here I am. Well, we're certainly pleased that you're here and, and certainly grateful for the books that you've written. You've probably already gotten the sense that uh, Canada is uh, is a country, and this may be true of other countries, where some of these uh, these idea pathogens that you write about have taken root. Uh, you know, there's a there's a distinction between the way that our country is being governed and our institutions, and the way people actually think and feel. Uh, and you you probably got a sense of that already. I'm certainly very happy to bestow that or to honor that <laughs> that honorific. Uh, that to have you as a as a Canuck and very glad that you've taken time to come and visit our country. I want to talk to you. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about your book, uh, which I have to say, um, and I've I've read more than a dozen books on this topic, but yours uh, is certainly the most comprehensive one, uh, and maybe the best. I would put it in the, in the top three. That, that I have read so far, I, I would put it right up there with a book that Douglas Murray wrote called The Madness of Crowds, and another one that was written by Heather MacDonald called The Diversity Delusion. But your book is very fascinating because you go into so much detail, so much depth. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to read this book a couple of more times before I get it all. Um, did you Did you have that sense when you were writing Race Marxism that uh, you really had to dig very deep to kind of get at the roots of these ideas to, to before you could fully explain them. Yeah, that was really the goal. Um, I don't actually, I think that almost all of what critical race theory is, and that's the point of the book, is unpacked in the first two chapters, uh, which is, it's a discussion of what critical race theory actually says and is. That's the first chapter, and the second is what it believes. Uh, and it kind of lays out 13 or 14 tenets of, of belief across, you know, various schools of thought and critical race theory. And after that, though, it's like I, I felt like audiences need to know where does this come from? So that's where I started to peel, peel it back and go backwards through the history of philosophy and talk about the neo-Marxist influence and the postmodern influence and the original Marxist influence and even the Hegelian dialectical influence. So basically the entire history of German idealism and, and kind of the French Romanticism, because without understanding that background context, it's very difficult to understand what CRT is. But the first two chapters, therefore, while they are deep and while they are somewhat challenging, uh, and I, I do, you probably do need to read it more than once. I had to read the source material five or six times each for the, the different sources to understand what really? it says. Yeah, it's just not easy. It's unfortunately just not easy. But I think that the first two chapters are, are actually pretty easy, relatively speaking. And then the second two chapters, unfortunately, are very difficult. And that's where it goes back into the kind of um, philosophical background. Yeah. And then after that, I talk about what critical race theory does, how it operates. And that's not separable from what it is for, right. for critical race theory, for any Marxist theory, ultimately, uh, what it is and what it does are, are combined. They call this praxis. Right. And so I unload, unload that in the fifth chapter and then try to talk about its uh, the, the classical liberal approach to society and politics as a uh, comparative in the final chapter. You've said some very interesting things publicly that I want to ask you about. Uh, and I'm drawing some of your Twitter page that I enjoy, or X page. I enjoy following, by the way. 
Uh, you posted something that, that I was very fascinating. I want to ask you about this. You said LGBTQ doesn't exist. It's a destructive contrivance by a small number of radical, and you say evil, disturbed political activists. I quite agree with you on that point. So they can consolidate power while hiding behind people who are, who are trying to live their lives. Would you mind explaining what you mean about that? Because uh, obviously LGBTQ is something has been very much in the news in Canada, as you know, with the million March for Kids and so on. Yeah. So I'll start actually by kind of segueing out of the CRT stuff that these things are really the same. They're just different domains of thought, sex, gender, and sexuality, as opposed to um, race. And with, with CRT, when I talk about what it does with praxis, I want to really underscore the idea that it's a cult and that uh, what cults do is produce more cult members. And then right. the cult members facilitate the cult growth, acquisition of resources, gaining of power or whatever else. This is no different over here. And this actually explains what I mean by LGBTQ doesn't exist. Um, it's very easy actually though to point out, show me a person who is gay and lesbian at the same time. Uh, such a person doesn't exist. So you know you're dealing with a political coalition with LGBTQ. Um, but when we go to trans, we're talking about something fundamentally different. We're talking about somebody who has something to do with their, what they call gender identity, or what, a term that's being used more commonly now in the States or increasingly commonly in, in at least conservative circles is sex confusion. Sometimes you hear the term gender dysphoria. They feel as though their, their way that they live their lives in terms of masculinity or femininity doesn't match their sex. And that has nothing to do with sexuality whatsoever. So it is not a sexual orientation. It has nothing to do with who you're attracted to or want to have a relationship with or whatever else. Nothing to do with it. It's fundamentally different. And then on the third hand, you have this body of people that embrace queer politics. Queer is not an identity at all. It's a political stance. And in fact, they define it that way explicitly. Who are they? Mm -hmm. David Halperin, we can give you a name, for example, was one of the founding fathers of queer theory. And he wrote a book in 1995 called Saint Foucault, which is uh, credited as being the book. And it is the book where they first define the word queer as we use it in the word queer theory, or in this case, the Q of LGBTQ. And his definition is that it is a identity without an essence. So it's not an identity at all. It's not based in anything essential. What he says it's based in instead is a oppositional defiance to norms and uh, anything that's considered dominant or legitimate. And therefore, it is a political stance of pure opposition to anything being considered normal or dominant. It's mm. a political position. So when you once you put the Q on LGBTQ, I, I'll tell you, you could make a coalition of LGB, and that's historically done because they are similar. T is cobbling on something fundamentally different. If you want to do that, you've made a broader coalition, but it's something fundamentally different. And it's informed largely by this Q. Q is not an identity at all. It is a political activist stance against normalcy, against decency explicitly, and uh, has nothing to do with who you are. It's who you've decided to, to be as a political actor. Mm -hmm. And so such a person, there is no essential queer by definition, and therefore such a person doesn't exist. Uh, LGBTQ is a opportunity for the queer activists to hide behind trans people in the far larger body of gays, lesbians, and bisexuals, and pretend that they have a very large, broad coalition 
who are mostly people who want to go about figuring out how to live their lives and mostly be left alone so that they can be turned into a political weapon for a very small number of radical activists mm -hmm. who are not essentially anything. Mm -hmm. Be that as it may, I want to ask you about something else. This is something I just found today. It's a post from Starbucks Canada corporate headquarters. And this perhaps won't shock you, given what you've said about our country. Um, but this is what they said. They said, we proudly fly the BLM flag, trans flag, and pride progress flag year round. We do not fly the Canadian flag because hate has no place here. Um, when I read that, it, it was very timely because it seemed to confirm a lot of the things that you talk about in your book about how uh, the, you know critical race theory and, and other sort of woke examples of woke ideology, they sort of invert uh, and pervert reason. Uh, and, and, and here they're talking about our Canadian flag, which is supposed to unite all Canadians, is actually one of hate. Whereas th this other flag, which seems to be spewing a lot of hatred, as you just explained, you know, that one's okay. But, so uh, do you want to comment on that? I thought this is very interesting in, in the context of your book. You know, it's funny that these people claim to be against colonizers when they're very clearly acting exactly the way colonizers act. They've come in, they've established a flag. They say that you should fly this flag. It kind of reminds me of the Passover. If you don't fly the flag, who knows what ruination will be visited upon your business. But if you do fly the flag, maybe the, the, the Passover. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, you, you nailed it exactly. What they've done is they've held up the, the symbol of Canada, the banner of Canada as a hate symbol, which mm -hmm. should be a, I mean, in kind of a genuine way, I know that we all kind of don't really care if anybody's offended in some sense, but uh, this should be very offensive to Canadians to say that this flag is a hate symbol. You know, it has a very offensive maple leaf on it, you know, very intimidating um, symbolism there uh, on the flag. That, that's a hate symbol. But here are these other symbols uh, have to be flown and have to be shown uh, in preference. And... Of course, not everybody necessarily agrees. Those are explicitly political flags. All three of the ones that they named are explicitly political flags. As a matter of fact, I mean, we know that BLM is explicitly tied to Marxist uh, agendas. The, the, the founders came out and said that they were trained Marxists. Uh, there's been quite the exposés written by, you know, fellows from the Heritage Foundation, for example, in the United States on BLM and its Marxist roots. Um, it's quite clearly uh, this this attempt to uh, cause Canadians to have to question the country that they are in in favor of a very small number of radicals who want to push a radical agenda. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a provocation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dare. I dare you to say something about, I dare you to stand up for your own flag or your country or your heritage. I dare you to, we'll call you racist. We'll call you homophobic. We'll call you transphobic. We'll call you these names that we know have power over you. Uh, because we want to control you, we dare you to stand up for Canadian values, and we'll use it just as an excuse to further denigrate Canada and Canadians uh, until you have submitted to our our new policies. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I, this is the behavior of colonizers, um, particularly nasty colonizers in in the way that they operate their politics, uh, particularly. Um, Marxist in their orientation. I mean, look at all of it. people say, why do you say that they're Marxist? Well, I've written books to the tune of hundreds of thousands of words now explaining why I think they're Marxist, but it's much simpler than that. What's their other symbol besides the flag is the raised clenched fist, right? That is the communist fist. Every communist country 
in history has used that fist as its symbol. Why is it all of a sudden not communist for that fist to be portrayed now? Of course it is. Right. The, one of the things that, uh, is, that I found was, was fascinating about your book is it talks about communism or Marxism as an ideology, but then you also translate that in terms of its, its own praxis, and that seems to be a form of fascism. In fact, uh, you, you post on your Twitter page, the push from the WEF today is to establish the creative class and essentially eliminate everyone else, the useless class, useless eaters, I think is the way Mr. Schwab put it in one of his books. And you say in a very real way, this is communism's final solution. The UNWF really can be thought of as the bastard child of the communists and the Nazis. You want to explain it? And you have this really interesting little diagram again. Your artwork is wonderful. You want to explain about that? But I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Um, the, the, the term useless eaters uh, originated with the Nazis. They actually, that was their term for really? the classes of people that they did not like. That was a term that originated with the Nazis. And of course, the concept of a final solution of eliminating everybody yeah. that uh, doesn't go along with your program was, was a Nazi concept. In fact, the communists didn't explicitly share that. If you look historically, the communists did not send people to concentration camps that turned into death camps, that, although that happened by, um, by, by consequence of what happened in the prisons. But that wasn't their design or their goal. The gulag was designed to be a re-education prison. It was there to get you to become the new Soviet man. And so the goal was to re-educate. And if you couldn't be, well, that was too bad. Or if the work was too hard, well, that was too bad. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of compassion involved in the re-education process, but it wasn't a, explicitly a final solution uh, program. So what we, what we have now, though, is we have people like at the United uh, at the uh, World Economic Forum, like Yuval Noah Harari, uh, like Klaus Schwab, saying explicitly that what we have is kind of two classes of people at the fundamental level. We can think back to the pandemic where you had essential and non-essential. Well, right. these terms for them are explicitly given as the creative class and the useless class. The useless class is clearly a softening of the language useless eater, which is, of course, visceral. But uh, it's the same concept. These people that will be displaced by automation that don't really have a role in, in the, the coming society, they don't do the kind of creative work. But at the same time, from, you know, whether it's the uh, you know, education for global citizenship movement, whether it's the... Uh, what they call education for sustainable development movement, or now there's this new thing that most people haven't caught on to yet, connected to the sustainable development goals from the United Nations, called the inner development goals, which are a remaking of, of man into sustainable man. It used to be Soviet man or socialist man, and now it's sustainable man. It's a re-education program. What you have is this, the creative class are the people who are on board with their agenda, exactly like you saw with Mao, exactly like you saw with Stalin, exactly like you saw with Lenin, exactly like you saw in the various other communist nations, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, and you know throughout Europe and the Eastern Bloc, but also exactly like you saw in the Nazis. Uh, but in this case, the goal is actually to, well, we have these people, they're useless. What do we do? Well, we might let them live out their natural lives, but we try to discourage them from reproducing. We want to degrow the economies, degrow our population to save the planet, for a more sustainable population. And Yuval Noah Harari has come out so explicitly with this as to say that what they're trying to build is a technological Noah's Ark uh, that will transport 
the creative class into a new world where technological marvels extend human life and all of these great things, the kind of transhuman agenda. But it, not everybody's going to be able to go. And so, you know, two by two, they'll go onto the ark and the creative class and the useless class will have to, one way or another, slowly or quickly be eliminated, which boils down to a final solution. And so you see the kind of worst parts of communist ideology and the worst parts of Nazi ideology coming together into kind of one new program under the banner of sustainability. And it's a very concerning thing that this whole inclusion, diversity thing that we've all been participating in for a few years now, all is pointing directly into that diversity, equity, and inclusion that we've all had to care about belonging is all being redefined in terms of global citizenship, sustainable development. That's where our education programs are going. That's where our colleges and universities, I've heard this is particularly true in Canada. Yes. That, uh, colleges are being, college professors in Canada have been reaching out to me for months now telling me that they're being asked by the faculty or by the, by the administration, I should say, to change their course syllabus to accommodate, doesn't matter what the course is, mathematics, philosophy, history, doesn't matter, to accommodate the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030 as explicit course material. And you can see that this push is happening and it's frankly time that we have to be very concerned and we have to be able to start to say, no, we're not going down this road because we can guess where this road leads, even if only by accident, it, it leads to calamity. Right, and that's their solution, but in your book, Race Marxism, you actually provide a solution, a better solution, a more hopeful one. Um, my understanding is it's a return to sort of more classical liberalism, and you use the term Americanism, which I understood to be, uh, you know, connected to the the, the philosophy that was uh, that that's found in the Declaration of Independence, for example. This is one one of the things I really value and appreciate about about your most recent book is you actually uh, point to some some solutions, some some practical solutions uh, to these issues. Do you want to talk about those a little? Yeah. So what I mean by Americanism, you're you're 100% right. I mean the values that are are written down at, at primarily in the preamble to the uh, United States Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson, riding high on the shoulders of John Locke. So it is the classically liberal approach. But at, at the end of the day, what is it actually saying? Well, it says you know we have we we we're, we're we're all men are created equal, and we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or which is also the right to property. Because what's actually at the end of the day, what what communism or fascism, it doesn't matter which one, they're they're kissing cousins as it is, as we say in the Southeast and, and the U.S. That's <laughs> uh, a, a colorful metaphor, I guess. But they're kissing cousins. Communism, fascism, totalitarianism, by any name or or, or banner, all has in common is that they try to eliminate family, they try to eliminate faith, and they try to eliminate property and uh, property rights. And so if we can protect family, faith, and property, uh, then we're, we're, we're already painting the road to a better solution. At the very fundamental level, what, what, the, what Americanism is about is humility, as opposed to yeah. the pride and hubris. Yeah. It's about recognizing that none of us is God, so none of us intrinsically deserves political authority over anybody else. Nobody gets a divine right to rule. Nobody is our elite better. We get to determine as much of our life as we can for ourselves. We get to do that in concert with other people as we will, as long as those uh, associations and, and, and agreements are made voluntarily. And that's 
all it really comes down to. I don't have political authority over you. You don't have political authority over me. And we will decide to loan our political authority to to elected representatives, not even leaders, who are going to um, try to enact political will for the good of the entire uh, populace. That's what counteracts these collectivist totalitarian drives. Uh, Totalitarianism is the belief at the end of the day that the ideology of the totalizing enterprise has to fill every aspect of life for every individual. And it therefore erases all ability to be individual. It seizes property rights and controls them. It takes away your ability to believe and worship as you will and to associate and form family and, and live in family as, as you uh, should be able to. Now, you've written, I believe, seven books in all now, James. Uh, are there any other books that uh, you would recommend to people? Not necessarily your own, but if, if they are your own, that's fine. But uh, obviously, you're very widely read uh, in, in these areas, in these topics. Are there any other books that you would recommend to our viewers and listeners that would enhance their understanding of the things that that you are writing and, and, and speaking about? Well, other than the ones that you already mentioned, I will point out, I do have a book about education that I think will be enlightening for parents. Well, yes, are yes, teachers. yes. I haven't uh, read that one yet. I have bought it. I'm, I'm planning to get into that one next. Yeah, yeah let's that's talk about that one. That's the Marxification of education. I want yes. people to understand how our education system transformed from something that taught children reading, writing, arithmetic, and history, and so on, into something that uh, teaches activism and radicalizes them into activism. And I wanted to, to explain it as a theft of our education system. Mm-hmm. And so that book has been very illuminating for a very large number of parents uh, across North America so far. Uh, it's also now reaching into the Brazilian market as it takes most of its aim at a Brazilian Marxist who, who can be considered the father of our current education system. And it's um, it's been very effective at that. So I encourage that. Uh, I think that the parallels that we're dealing with in the world right now to um, Maoism, especially in countries like Canada and the United States and, and Great Britain, are, are so profound that I have to encourage. I even wrote the foreword for this book. So I encourage people to get the book called uh, Mao's America by um, Xi Van Fleet. It's coming out soon. It's, I have an advanced copy. Um, I encourage people to pre-order that. It's actually very illuminating to see the parallels between what we call woke and uh, Maoism from somebody who survived uh, some pretty terrible circumstances when Mao was in power in China in the 1960s. Um, There's another book I've been reading, I just finished recently, called The Weaponization of Loneliness by Stella Morabito. She's a former CIA analyst. We had her as a guest on our show. That's That's a brilliant book, yes. That's a very good book. And she leans on this book, and I lean on this book as well. Uh, it's called um, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. Uh, and then the subtitle is A Study of Brainwashing in China. Thanks so much for those selections, uh, James. Those are terrific. And uh, also, thank you so much for spending this time with us uh, today. I want to wish you much continued success with your books and your public speaking in everything that you do. I'm, I'm excited to be here and thank you for having me on the show.